necessarily knocking the fact that there's a placebo response here, but we do need to look at it transparently and honestly that many things that we do by seeing patients in clinic will have an effect on symptom resolution. I think importantly is let the patient talk. Okay, we we really, as I've mentioned before about two-week wait clinics, they can often be very pressurised. Many people ask to see excess clinic numbers because of the number of two-week wait referrals that they're getting that have to be seen within 14 days. But just bear in mind that there's a patient now who almost certainly never felt they had cancer until they were told that they were being referred on a suspected cancer pathway. Welcome to the second episode of Series 4 of BLA Connections, A Clear Voice. I'm your host, Natalie Watson, and I aim to bring you discussions and insights from experts from across the globe on all things laryngology. We hope you have had a chance to listen to our first episode of this series, The Management of Airway Stenosis, with Professor Guri Sandhu. Do make sure you have a listen. This brings me to today's episode. We're going to talk to Mr. James O'Hara, who will speak about the topic that is incredibly common in the laryngology clinic, persistent throat symptoms. Mr. James O'Hara is a clinical senior lecturer of Newcastle University and honorary consultant otolaryngologist at Newcastle-upon-Tyne Hospitals. James, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. It's very exciting. It's very exciting to have you on. So, Let's start with the concept of laryngopharyngeal reflux or LPR. Now, I remember going to the British Society of Gastroenterology in around 2006, 2007, and I was trying to defend the existence of LPR back then. And obviously, we've come a long way about LPR and throat symptoms. What's the evidence behind LPR, etc. So what's your take on throat symptoms and LPR? Oh, right. Very broad question. I could talk all night on that question. Um, What's my take on it? So my take is that for at least 25 years, our specialty has become particularly reliant on assuming a potential underlying causative mechanism of reflux with many of the symptoms that we see in our patients in terms of chronic throat and laryngology symptoms. And my take on it is that the evidence thus far has been pretty low level to demonstrate that reflux really is as widespread as has been billed. And I think as a specialty, it would be really helpful for us to have a close look at exactly what that process has been to lead us to this position where for many of us now there's just an assumption that laryngopharyngeal reflux is a diagnosis. Yeah. I guess if people see a bit of redness, a bit of swelling, erythema edema, and the different things in the reflux finding scale, then we just point towards reflux, don't we? Yes. And there is actually very, very little evidence to suggest that those subtle clinical findings with wide interrater and reliability are related to reflux. But of course, there's a broader question in terms of how we as doctors interact with patients as well. And for many of us examining patients, more and more so these days, where patients can see what the larynx and pharynx looks like, it's always helpful to give patients a diagnosis and point to a potential physical sign that might be causing their symptoms. And uh, 
I don't really mind the fact that all of us have our own individual nuances in terms of how we manage patients and how we communicate with patients. My concern is that we've potentially got this wrong. And without improving the level of evidence behind this condition, we may not be helping our patients. My big bugbear is there's no real one gold standard investigation to prove reflux in the larynx and pharynx. No. Well, I think broader than that is that there's no actual definition for what the condition is, which is why we've tried to promote more of a vague term to this to get us to think a little bit more about it. You you kindly introduced this as persistent throat symptoms rather than laryngopharyngeal reflux. And, and that's just something that we've discussed just to try and promote a, a potential move away from reflux for all patients. Yeah. More and more, we see an irritated larynx and the consequences of an irritated larynx. And that irritation can be from, we proposed refluxate from the stomach, but it also might come from a post-nasal drip, or it might come from alcohol that they've ingested or smoking that they've inhaled. So all those are irritations that can cause erythema and edema of the larynx. So I guess they can cause the persistent throat symptoms that we would maybe say, oh, that's from reflux. True. But I think probably the biggest element in the type of signs that you're mentioning there are patients' behavioural elements. So throat clearing, persistent, harsh coughing. I think a lot of these contribute to the inflammation that we're seeing. But of course, you know, it's the chicken and egg question. What's leading this? When the mechanism was proposed, those questioning it would say, well, for instance, look at chronic cough, very similar and analogous to persistent throat symptoms with almost certainly an overlap in it. Is chronic cough caused by gastroesophageal reflux entering the pharynx and larynx or being or irritating the vagal nerve? Or actually, is it the cough that's then causing gastroesophageal reflux? So, as things stand, a lot of what we're discussing are, are suppositions and not based on hard research and evidence. So that's what your whole specialty area is. Let's just go back to the beginning and what got you interested in throat symptoms? Not necessarily what, probably who. There were two really pivotal and inspirational people that I worked for. First of all, when I was a starting out in ENT in, in Nottingham, I worked for Nick Jones. And I remember Nick got me involved in writing up a review on chronic cough. And I remember Nick taking me to one side and saying, James, you're going to hear a lot of people saying that all these symptoms are due to reflux. I wouldn't necessarily believe everything you hear. He was really quite sceptical about it. And then I had the real pleasure of moving up to Newcastle and working with Janet Wilson. 30 years ago, Janet did her MD and looked at posterior laryngitis and reflux and concluded at that stage that the mechanism had been overestimated and at that stage questioned it and actually moved on and moved on far more towards the psychological sequelae of symptoms and the psychological influence that they have on symptoms. And, and it was only really when Janet ran an evidence-based medicine day in Edinburgh in 2011, when she invited a lot of speakers, myself included, 
to summarize all the evidence out there in terms of extraesophageal reflux. And she termed that conference extraesophageal reflux separating fact from myth. And we're still very much in the situation where what we're discussing is mythical. It's amazing. But in a way, we have to try and uh, give our patients some kind of trust in us. We, we're seeing this irritation. We've got to give it some kind of label. And I guess most of us do say, oh, that's a bit of reflux or that's an irritation. And I guess a lot of it is based on sand, really, isn't it? Yeah. And I think what, you're, what you've said there probably summarises most of the frustrations around this, that we want to give patients a label. Yeah. But more than anything, I'd like... I'd like trainees, I'd like us to all think about what it is that we're diagnosing and and what we're saying is going on here because a lot of us are just picking this up because it's been in the press for 25 years without us really questioning it. But I would say, say this potentially controversially maybe is that I do wonder whether we've picked up reflux as a means of disposal for some patients that we can't really explain why that inflammation is there. We can't necessarily explain the symptoms. And so we've used reflux as a means of giving it a label, giving it a treatment and discharging the patient. And for many of the patients that we see, many of them have gone round the houses of trying reflux, being told that that's what the cause is and are no further forward. Really, we want to improve the care that we're offering patients. So you're saying that you want to improve the care that we're offering patients. I mean, you were instrumental in the topic study with Prof Janet Wilson. Can you maybe give us a brief summary of that, of the outcome? Yeah, so the, the topics or the trial of proton pump inhibitors really came about after the evidence-based medicine conference that we ran in 2011. And in many respects, it's probably the simplest trial that we could have ran following that conference. I remember we, we sat down afterwards to look at what the research outputs from the conference were, and it was clear that there was an over-reliance on the use of proton pump inhibitors for these symptoms with very little evidence to support it. When I say very little evidence, no level one evidence. Hundreds of case reports showing that patients' symptoms improve with time and with proton pump inhibitors, which was not reflected in the randomized control trials. So, it was very difficult for us to look at anything beyond the big question, really. That was the practice, and that still is the practice, that these patients are being given proton pump inhibitors, and that message is filtered through to primary care. So we ran a quite a straightforward, pragmatic, randomized trial of twice-daily lansoprazole versus match placebo for patients with persistent throat symptoms. Well, the results were pretty stark. We found no evidence at all for any benefit of lansoprazole over and above placebo. And if you look closely at the results, there wasn't any trend at all to even base any further suppositions on about proton pump inhibitors. In fact, if you look carefully, some of the outcomes improved more in the placebo group than the PPI group. So it really was conclusive that empirical use of PPIs for these symptoms as a practice should be discontinued. We need to filter that message through to primary care. And we now need to start to readdress and look at this patient population as to what the potential underlying mechanism of symptom are. So persistent throat symptoms, just to be clear for everyone who's listening, would 
what would you say, globus, uh, pain in the throat, uh, hoarseness, cough, throat clearing, those type of things? Yeah, absolutely. I suppose if we take that definition of persistent throat symptoms from what we looked at in the Topitz trial, then they're all the symptoms that are mapped out on the reflux symptom index. So all of all of those that you've mentioned, along with the ninth item of that question there, which are traditional heartburn symptoms. But yeah, they are those intermittent fluctuating symptoms, which are so common. And I suppose another reason why I've got so involved in this as chiefly a head and neck cancer surgeon, seeing an awful lot of two-week weight referral patients, is that these symptoms make up the vast majority of those patients. And we're making great progress here. Our colleagues, Vin Polarian and, and team, have, have generated the head and neck cancer risk calculator, which will hopefully, this, this looking at symptoms like this and, and trying to better identify those patients who have concerning symptoms rather than the waxing and waning functional type symptoms that we might see with persistent throat symptoms is a really important area. I think one thing that we've got wrong in our specialty and with the whole process is that we have engendered an emphasis on potential underlying malignancy for these symptoms. And so an awful lot of patients are now referred on that pathway and they often get shortchanged. You know, they never thought they had cancer when they went to see the GP. They've got some symptoms they want to be managed. They get referred through on a two-week wait pathway. We tell them they've not got cancer and off you go. Or we tell them they've, got, they've not got cancer, you might have reflux, off you go. And it's not really why they went to see the GP. I think many of us are working to try and break that down and actually have these symptoms referred through to clinics that specialise in them. And our colleagues in speech therapy and laryngology I think a far better place to really spend the time with patients to work out what the underlying symptoms may be due to rather than a short clinic appointment to say that they've not got cancer. That was another reason that cemented my interest in it is that actually 80% of your clinical work in head and neck when you're seeing two-week weight referrals is based on these type of symptoms. And that's really interesting to see how your career has brought you to throat symptoms. I guess it's the, the the globus and throat symptoms for all like the the dizzy for the otologist or for some otologists or the nosebleeds or kind of stuffy nose for a rhinologist. But what I would say is uh, going on from the Topitz trial, you having made the the conclusion that PPIs don't have any effect above placebo for th- those with persistent throat symptoms. You're now looking at uh, recruiting for a new follow-on trial with Gaviscon Advance. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. So this is really exciting. And look, I'm, I'm sorry if I come across as sceptical of the whole underlying reflux mechanism, but I think I am naturally sceptical and I would encourage all of us to do so because as doctors, we should question the, our practices. So it was very clear to me that after Topitz, I felt the ENT specialty would then move towards alginates and, of course, most commonly Gaviscon. We were already seeing lots of case series reports suggesting that we should be using proton pump inhibitors and alginates together to really manage very difficult resistant reflux symptoms. I thought that that's what would happen next. And, of course, the two have very different mechanisms of action. Let's be very clear with Toppets. 
What we've done there is show that proton pump inhibitors are no more effective than placebo. We've not shown that these patients don't have reflux causing their symptoms. Many specialist laryngologists will look at some of the underlying basic science work showing the presence of pepsin in laryngopharyngeal cells and saying, well, you know, there's still a mechanism that we need to look at here. There are certainly more complex basic science investigations we could do, but this next trial really is exactly the same trial design Gaviscon Advance versus a matched placebo. And and it's been really exciting for us. Myself and my, my colleague in Newcastle, David Hamilton, have been working with Reckitt, who, who make Gaviscon products, Gaviscon Advance. We've been working with them for a number of years now. And that you know, I've got to say this, they've been great to work with. The reason why we approach them is that we need a placebo. And it's proven really, really difficult to get a, a reliable placebo to alginates. So, so that's why we approached we approached Reckitt a number of years ago, and it's, and it's taken quite a lot of discussions to, to persuade them to support this trial, but they have. I think we go into it with an open mind. It's a completely different mechanism of action that we're using alginates for over a proton pump inhibitor. So yes, yeah, so we're looking to recruit patients f- for this trial across the UK. We, we put an advert in ENT UK newsletter two or three months back, and the response has been fantastic. Over 25 units have contacted us to say that they're, they're interested to, in recruiting patients. And the idea is that we're going to learn from our experience in COVID. Many of these patients have been managed remotely with telephones, calls. And so we're, we're attempting to run this as a remote trial. So we'll approach patients remotely, we'll consent remotely, which is a really revolutionary thing to do in terms of research governance and ethics, and send them their, their drug through the post and then see them in the ENT clinic at the end of eight weeks of their treatment. So we're learning a lot from what we've done in Toppets. Methodology design is maturing, but hopefully this is a trial that will appeal to patients. And it's going to be the next stage in looking at the pragmatic approach to treatment for these symptoms. Well, will they have a pre-trial scope? No. So exactly. So the, so it's it's different to Toppets in that all patients in Toppets did have an endoscopic examination. So uh, y- you're quite right to bring that up. And, but in many respects, what TALGITS, as we've called it, trial of alginates in throat symptoms, this will will be more applicable to primary care. Let's be honest. Most of these patients start treatment in primary care with proton pump inhibitors, or if, if we demonstrate that alginates are beneficial, then maybe these patients can have the correct treatment without needing to come to secondary care. So yes, the trial design is very much based on offering treatment before we see them at the ENT clinic. So slightly different. And when they come to the ENT clinic, are they coming to have a video laryngostroboscopy with high definition, or are they just having normal scope with no high definition so that the so the trial is going to be all preclinical this is the current working plan is that they come to the clinic at eight weeks after they their gaviscon advance or matched placebo and we assess their symptoms and that's the end of the trial they then get seen and managed as they would do normally in the nt clinic and the reason we've done this is from what we learned from topics and now this is a really interesting bit that that that, that we've maybe not discussed too much is that We've been told that symptoms and signs are related. 
So commonly the reflux symptom index and the reflux finding score are related. But actually, if you look at the number of studies that report the relationship, it's very, very low. There's only one study really on 40 patients who report a reasonably high um, correlation coefficient. We found almost zero relationship between our reflux symptom index and our reflux finding score in toppids. So the signs were not those as you described at the start of this interview, and we found that they were in no way related or could contribute to describing who may have responded and who may not. So for that reason, we've removed clinical examination from this very pragmatic trial. Yeah, I think it's it's a bit like comparing it to looking at CT sinuses. If you got a CT sinuses for everyone in the population and asked them if they had any nasal symptoms, and you we always say like 15% of those will have some pacification, partially pacification of their sinuses, but have no symptoms whatsoever. Exactly. And that brings us back to Nick Jones, who I mentioned right at the start. Yeah, when I came into ENT, that's very much what Nick was talking about, was the use of CT sinuses. And, and that was a that was a big practice change for many of us at that time, wasn't it? That we would go on, that what we were doing was assessing patient's symptoms I think that's the most important element about this condition that we're discussing, that actually we should be driven by patient symptoms, not by signs or objective measures, because those three elements aren't related. We haven't defined them well enough. But what is consistently important is what the patient reports to us. That's actually the only thing that matters, is that patient-reported outcome measures improved, whatever the treatment course is. Because... what are we trying to treat here? Are we trying to treat a picture on a screen? Or are we trying to treat the person? Absolutely. Which is why we need to be quite clear that we're not necessarily knocking the fact that there's a placebo response here, but we do need to look at it transparently and honestly that many things that we do by seeing patients in clinic will have an effect on symptom resolution. And more and more, I've been looking at patients and really digging deep into what are the comorbidities that they have. And I feel that those with, you know, fibromyalgia or chronic pain syndromes, those types of symptoms, and also suffer with throat symptoms, I sometimes look at their larynx and I may not see very many signs, but I try and explain to them that I feel that their their whole pain response is heightened and their sensitivity to any insult to their larynx is heightened, just like their pain in their joints is heightened. I think all of this chronic pain, fibromyalgia may be related to hypersensitivity of the larynx in certain cases, certainly the ones that I've seen most recently. Yes, I would agree. I think that's probably an observation that many of us make. Another evidence-based medicine conference that Janet Wilson ran was on, as we termed it at the time, medically unexplained symptoms. The terminology has changed a bit. And actually, it was one of our co-applicant psychologists who informed us that patients don't like the term medically unexplained symptoms. They prefer the term persistent. I'm not sure there's any great label for these symptoms, but it is important for us to recognise that there are overlaps in, in certain symptom groups. And and 
our, our colleagues in the gastroenterology world struggle with treating functional reflux, non-esophagitis reflux. So every single specialty has its set of symptoms, which are a challenge for clinicians to explain to patients and to treat well. And this is one of ours. But I think we need to be honest with patients. We need to develop strategies for how patients can manage their symptoms. And I, I firmly believe that not relying on an underlying diagnosis of reflux without us improving our further evidence in this field would be more honest for how we approach this with patients. So in preference, did that prescription box, if you wanted to give someone Gaviscon Advance, you'd be writing persistent throat symptoms rather than LPR? Yes, but the problem with that, of course, is if you're prescribing it, as you're suggesting there, then Gaviscon Advance is actually licensed for, in inverted commas, LPR, based on, on, on a small feasibility pilot study that Julian McGlashan did in 2009, showing that Gaviscon Advance really did improve these symptoms over and above no treatment at all. And, and it's great that, that Julian is, is one of our co-applicants on, on the Talgitz trial as well, bringing his experience in, in this field. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult area prescribing alginates for some of us. I've got to say, alginates are widely available for patients to, to buy over the counter. And, and I think one of the elements to this is, is, is coming up with strategies that patients can use themselves to take ownership of their symptoms and manage their symptoms rather than us as medics leading that for them. And I don't think we should shy away from from allowing patients to take control of their symptoms if we're giving them appropriate medical information to help them do so. So a, a lot of my colleagues that are that I'm working with in speech therapy, who are, are researching areas in terms of how we generate appropriate information for patients to use to help with symptoms like this. Well, I look forward to hearing the results of the the trial. If people do want to still get involved, who is it open to? The recruitment pool, unfortunately, is chiefly going to be England, Scotland, and Wales. We, we, we've had interest from Northern Ireland, and and, it, and it's 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 really quite difficult to do that currently for for a number of reasons. But for for this particular project, not least couriering the individual medication to patients to the to their home. So that's where it's going to be based. And will it be a tablet? No, no, it's liquid. Liquid, yeah, yeah. That sounds good. And so if they want to get interested, if they want to get involved and they're interested, how do they contact you? Well, please email me. I'm on james.ohara at newcastle.ac.uk. We will be sending round feasibility questionnaires to centres because we're not going to open it up everywhere. We're going to have to limit it to maybe 10 or 15 centres to start with just in terms of the complexity of currying drugs. And how many patients do you want to recruit? 250. Great. So once we've got all this evidence and with the evidence that we've got so far, what's your personal approach to someone coming in or the reading a letter and they've got persistent throat symptoms? I think importantly is let the patient talk. Okay. We, we really, as I've mentioned before about two-week wait clinics, they can often be very pressurized. Many people ask to see excess clinic numbers because of the number of two-week wait referrals that they're getting that have to be seen within 14 days. But just bear in mind that there's a patient there who 
almost certainly never felt they had cancer until they were told that they were being referred on a suspected cancer pathway. Let the patient talk and really explore the symptoms and discuss lifestyle. Don't be afraid to discuss anxiety, depression, stress. Many patients openly want to discuss elements that will almost certainly have an impact on the symptoms that they are, that that they're reporting. So a good time to discuss. I, I then think that examining them well in the clinic is beneficial. And there's no doubt that patients do get an awful lot from the biofeedback that you can show them on the endoscopy screen, especially with modern distal chip endoscopes. The pictures are fantastic. And whilst we might be saying, look, not all of these patients may necessarily require secondary care intervention, I think there's little doubt that patients do gain great benefit from seeing and being talked through their their examination. So that's an important part of it. And then I think once you've once you've listened, once you've examined, then you can discuss the strategies that you want to develop. Assuming that there's no underlying pathology that you've demonstrated. And that's quite a broad strategy. I think as you've touched upon, explaining to patients that we don't really understand the mechanism for this, that there does often appear to be a trigger that set these off and many patients report a cold an upper respiratory tract infection and then i spend a while discussing through how throat clearing vigorous coughing can often drive the symptoms and that i I think that's the element that they really need to concentrate on so throat hygiene avoidance of clearing avoidance of harsh coughing avoidance of dryness i think is probably the most important element but We do live in an age where people are more overweight than they may have been. People may drink fizzy drinks in the evening, maybe on shift patterns. Whilst I am sceptical that reflux plays a role for everybody, I think if you are eating late at night and then going to bed with a full stomach, that's something that we can easily remedy by not eating for three hours before going to bed, raising the head of the bed, using wedge pillows. These sort of things are all simple rather than resorting to twice daily systemic medication. Yeah, no, absolutely. And how often do you send them to SLT for that advice as well? Rarely, rarely. Our speech therapists are now starting to do two-week weight clinics, which is fantastic because it does mean the patients are going straight to the specialty that can give them expert advice. Most of these patients, remember, have functional dysphonia, functional symptoms that therapies advice can be really effective for but no I, I i don't send them routinely for persistent throat symptoms i will send them through for functional dysphonia muscle tension dys, dys, dysphonia voice therapy just giving them time in the clinic is we we usually have enough to, to give them a strategy but hopefully as we piece together more research and more evidence in this field hopefully we can start to generate better information that patients can use to develop strategies themselves to manage these symptoms. Excellent, excellent, excellent approach and advice and guidance. So thank you so much for joining us today, sharing your experience of the management of persistent throat symptoms. What are your take-home messages? I think the take-home message really is that we should all look at this as an example of why we should be critical in what we do and question what we do. 25 years of twice daily proton pump inhibitors and we've finally shown that we need to stop that practice. Question what you do and 
improve what we do for the patient benefit. Excellent. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed listening. We hope you've enjoyed listening today. This has been BLA Connections, a clear voice. I've been your host, Natalie Watson. Thank you very much, James. Our full series can be found in the podcast provider of your choice, or you will find all stored on our BLA Connect app for easy access. We would also love to hear from you. Please feel free to email with any topics you would like us to explore, any questions you have, along with any suggested experts you would like to hear from. Also, if you'd like to contribute to these podcasts, please email inquiries at britishlaryngological.org. We'll put all the information about the topics trial and how to get involved in the new follow-on trial with Gavscon Advance. Thank you for listening and we hope you found our podcast informative. Please remember to subscribe and do leave a review with your podcast provider of choice. We do appreciate your likes, subscribes and reviews.